Hey there, this is Jay from Filmstrip dropping in to let you know you're about to hear a classic episode from our archives. Some of these shows were produced before we called the show Filmstrip Podcast, before we used popcorn ratings, uh, had the standard intro song from Frozen Lake 121, or really even knew what we were doing recording and editing the show. However, there's a lot of fun in them, and we hope you enjoy. Just wanted to let you know in case you noticed the differences. Now, on to the show. I'm not making this up. Welcome to Filmstrip and our review of the Bourne films. The Bourne Identity, The Bourne Supremacy, The Bourne Ultimative, and 2012's The Bourne Legacy. With all of them at the same time? You heard me. Our agents for the series are Nick. I'm going to ask you some simple questions. You're going to answer me honestly. I swear to God, I'm going to kill you. And Jay. Oh, come on, folks. We caught a break here. Let's go. Please note that these files require a high level of listener clearance and you will be privy to plot summaries and detailed discussions. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. And this is our review of The Born Identity, starring Matt Damon, Franca Potente, Chris Cooper, Brian Cox, Clive Owen, Julia Stiles, and Adewale Akinawe Agbaje. Directed by Doug Lyman, released in 2002 on a budget of $60 million, it made $288 million worldwide during its theatrical run and made Matt Damon an action star. Not something you see every day or would have ever expected, I guess. And Nick, we're here for a couple of reasons. First, you and I have been in sci-fi land for a long time on this podcast. We did all the Alien films. We did Alien vs. Predator. We did the Ridley Scott, it shouldn't be an Alien film, Prometheus. So it's time to do something a little different. (laughs) And secondly, you and Anna and I were talking on our summer movie trailer sessions show uh, about trailers of, of upcoming films. And you mentioned The Bourne Legacy, which comes out August of 2012. And you're very much into Bourne, the books, the movies, and all that, right? Very much so, I am. Big fan of the books and a uh, big fan of the movies. And oddly enough, I have never seen these. Or I should say, I've seen bits and pieces of the first two on cable, but I've never sat down to watch them until this series. So kind of looking forward to talking about these. It's a little different. But now, tell me, the how did you find, did you find the, did you watch, see the film first and then go read the books, or was it the other way around? Actually, I remember seeing the made-for-TV movie back in the day of The Born Identity. <laughs> I don't know if yeah, anybody Richard Chamberlain. That. Yeah, that. Folks, that is on YouTube if you want to watch it. It's three and a half hours long. <laughs> so knock yourself out if you want to see that. We're not reviewing that. No, we're not. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. I. You know what? I think I've seen a piece of that one, but I didn't know what it was. So <laughs> all I remember is Richard Chamberlain screaming in some foreign language with no subtitles. So... <laughs> But after um, I saw that movie and stuff, I remember seeing that as like a younger kid. And then um, I did do a book report, I remember, in high school. And uh, I wanted to do something like spy espionage stuff. I was kind of all into that because I was going to try to get into the military at the time. And um, one of my teachers actually recommended The Born Identity. He said it was a real good spy book that had to do a lot with the Cold War. And um, Carlos the Jackal, um, you know, if you ever heard about him, he was a real-life yeah. um, assassin who the um, – the guy who wrote the Bourne books actually brought 
brought kind of mixed in with reality with, you know, this uh, fictional guy named Bourne. And I picked up the first book and I was hooked and I really liked it. And I've read the last two books that the author wrote. I've, there are some more books later in the series, but they're not written by him because he unfortunately passed away. So there, I mean, there's like the Bourne legacy, the Bourne... There's everything's got a born in the name, but yeah, I, I read the first three and I read part of the Born Legacy, and I really like the first two books a lot. And the Born Ultimatum's okay, Born Legacy. I mean, obviously, I stopped it halfway through, so you can kind of get uh, how I thought about that one from that. But um, yeah, I think they're really great books and are totally worth people checking out. And the first one are pretty similar, like from book to movie, but the second and third books have very little, if nothing, in common besides the name. So it's almost kind of it's almost like a kind of little neat alternate history. I mean, you can almost picture Damon being born, even if the character they describe in there doesn't match him. I mean, you can always kind of visualize it and kind of bring yourself into a new reality with the character if you do like it. So a very interesting take. And like I said, I didn't know anything about these. I knew when they came out and I heard people talking about them. And I remember the line that all of my friends said is, oh, it's so much better than like any of the James Bond flicks that they've done in the last 15 years. And this is pre Casino Royale. So I would mostly agree with that statement, <laughs> but I said I don't I don't really want to see that. I to me, this felt like Jack Ryan. Like I'm a big Tom Clancy fan and Jack Ryan and all the films and a lot of those books and things, and they're they're tedious to get through. But I really love those. And this just seeing the trailers, I remember going, eh, it looks like a ripoff of Tom Clancy. I'm not I'm not going to go for it." So I skipped it. And it's not until we started talking about you know, a uh, series to do and you threw born legacy on the table that I got back into this. But, uh, I guess we'll, we'll get into what I thought of it and what you thought of it again on this review, but I guess we should start with a good old plot summary. So let me see if I can narrow this down. Cause this is a dense little, little film. An Italian fishing uh, boat crew working off the coast of France finds an unconscious man adrift in the ocean with two gunshot wounds in his back. When he wakes up, he realizes that he suffers from retrograde amnesia, having only one clue to his identity an account number to a safe deposit box provided by a tiny laser projector surgically implanted in his hip. He travels to Switzerland to find the bank and discovers that he is skilled and advanced in hand-to-hand combat and fluid in German, where he instinctively defends himself one night and in an embassy. He finds the deposit box and... Con- and yeah, he finds the deposit box contains a significant amount of cash in different currencies, a handgun, and several passports with his photo, and numerous aliases. He assumes the identity of the top passport, Jason Bourne, is who he is, and he leaves. A bank employee notifies a CIA Special Activities Division group known as Operation Treadstone about his visit, and when the police arrive, Bourne manages to escape and flees to the U.S. consulate, where he meets Marie Kurtz, and offers her $20,000 to take him to Paris uh, to the address on his born passport. Back at the CIA headquarters, Alex Conklin, the head of Treadstone, reveals to his supervisor, Deputy Director Ward Abbott, that Bourne was a covert operative responsible for a feral assassination attempt on an African dictator, Nikwana Wambasi. And intending to sever all connections between the CIA and Wambasi, Conklin sends three highly trained assassins to eliminate Bourne. Born and Marie arrive in Paris where he finds one of the, his aliases, John Michael Kane, was supposedly killed two weeks ago. The first asset, the first assassin ambushes them, but Bourne subdues him after a brief fight. Realizing now the CIA is tracking them, Bourne and his new friend flee. Conklin enlists Nikki Parsons, a logist, logistics technician at Treadstone, 
to assist him in tracking Bourne and Marine. Bourne goes to meet Wambosi in order to obtain information, but one of the CIA assassins, known as the Professor, kills him before Bourne can arrive. With the news of Wambosi's death, Bourne surmises that he was an assassin before the onset of his amnesia. He and Marie flee to the home of her stepbrother in the countryside, where Bourne decides that he no longer wants to be who he was. Conklin Tramp tracks Bourne and Marie to the countryside house, and the next morning the professor tries to snipe Bourne, but Bourne creates a diversion and dispatches him in a crop field. As he dies, the professor tells Bourne about their mutual connection to Treadstone, and Bourne sends Marie away for her safety, then uses the professor's cell phone to arrange a meeting with Conklin. Bourne tells Conklin back in... Bourne tells Conklin back to the Paris safe house where Conklin tells him that he, Bourne, was the one who planned the entire operation to kill Wambosi. The revelation triggers Bourne's memory, and through a series of flashbacks, he remembers how he used the cane alias to infiltrate Wambosi's entourage but couldn't bring himself to kill the man because his children were present at the time. When he aborted the mission and tried to flee, he was shot twice and fell overboard before being found by the Italian fisherman. Bourne tells Conklin he's quitting Treadstone and warns him not to follow him. After knocking Conklin out, Bourne kills several other Treadstone agents in the building. But after Bourne has escaped, Conklin orders Nikki to close down the safe house, and shortly after, he is killed by the third asset, Manhunt, on the orders of Abbott. Sometime later, Abbott explains to a descendant oversight committee that he shut down Treadstone because of its ineffective cost-benefit ratio and proposes a new program, Operation Blackbear, uh, Blackbriar. Born now free from the CIA, travels to Greece where he reunites with Marie, who is running a surf shop. And that is the plot summary for The Born Identity. Now, Nick, when you described this film to me, you said, I like this first one because it's just a little, small, little quaint film. And I'm not sure I agree with you on that. This seems like a very large, sweeping, epic action adventure. It is and it isn't. When I say, like, smaller, I mean, I'm kind of thinking, like, James Bond, how it's very much all over the world, and it's very, like, exotic locales, and you got very, you know, exotic villains and everything, where this one is really just one man not even really doing anything. He's just trying to figure out who he is. And then you got the CIA over in the United States just basically trying to kill him, and it's just you're kind of with him along the way, him just trying to figure out who he is. There's really nothing more to the plot than... Just you're with this guy trying to figure out who he is with him. So that's what I kind of mean when it's a little bit smaller. It's not like it's not it's not ambitious in a way that it's going out and, you know, with the with the locales and with, you know, even the plot revolved around him. It's it's a simple plot. It it is very simple. You're right. And the name says it all. It's the born identity. It's about him trying to remember who he was. And then when he ultimately figures it out, he doesn't want to be that anymore for whatever reason. He has this break. And I, I want to talk just for a minute before we get through the, that plot and start walking through the film a little bit more, though, about Matt Damon as Jason Bourne action star. Now, I've seen Matt Damon and stuff all the way back to when he was really young. I'm talking like school ties. You know, I remember him from that. And, of course, Goodwill Hunting. How can you not know him from that? And several other films like that, Rounders, et cetera. I remember him in Courage Under Fire, and I mean, he's, you know, he's played all these different kinds of roles, Saving Private Ryan. And I never thought of him as Jack Ryan or James Bond. He just doesn't come off that way. He's very intellectual, and he just comes off like a math teacher or something. I don't know. He, he's or a history teacher rather. He just seems like he would play a different role. So to watch him. Not only play this role, but his stunt work in here is amazing, and it's him because the close-ups are all him, and the work he does here is pretty impressive. I got to say, I was blown away by how much he made me buy into the fact that he was this CIA assassin. 
Well, for me, I think it's it's kind of believable. I mean, you watch a lot of like James Bond stuff, and you got like you know Pierce Brosnan, and you know whoever could believe that guy could beat anybody up. But here, it's uh, you you believe it. I mean, just the way he carries himself, and he looks like an everyday man. And for me, isn't that kind of what a spy or an um, an assassin should look like? He shouldn't look like a playboy or some guy like Arnold Schwarzenegger who's got muscles upon muscles. I mean, he looks like a regular, like you said, like a school teacher. Looks like a regular guy, and I think that yeah. kind of helps out the role with him. Yeah, people like that stand out. The one thing I know about the CIA and their clandestine operations is they try to get the most normal people they can. And one thing I enjoyed about this film is everybody at the Treadstone safe house, with the exception of Conklin and Abbott, are all like 20-something to mid-30s. They're young. Young people work for the CIA. It's young people that are into technology, that are really smart, and they just blend in. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not supposed to draw attention to themselves. That's half the point, right? I mean, the thing about James Bond is, like, in, you got to look at James Bond in his different eras, and this will be the last time we, we compare him, I guess, but Connery was the man's man of the 50s and 60s kind of thing. Roger Moore, never he couldn't beat anybody up. Everybody knew that, but he was suave and all of that stuff. Timothy Dalton looked like a flute player in a you know orchestra, and who the heck knows what Pierce Brosnan, he looked like a model. Daniel Craig looks like he could kick your ass twice and then piss on you as he drank your whiskey. I mean, he looks like he could kill you. But, again, Bond walks in a room, and he's you look he's looking to see who he's going to you know, whip that next day. Jack Ryan and Jason Bourne aren't really looking for problems. They just solve them very quickly and then move on. And that's the thing I kind of like about Bourne is that he's not, like you said, Schwarzenegger coming through the door with guns blazing. He's not the Expendables. Well, not even that, but it's just like his physical presence. When you look at Matt Damon, I mean, he's a very regular-looking guy. I mean, he's not very tall. I mean, he's pretty average. I mean, was he like five nine, five ten? And then you like, you know, like you're bringing up Daniel Craig, who is as fantastic as James Bond. But when anytime he's in, you know, Casino Royale, he walks in the room. It's like, how could you not notice the guy? He has a presence to him. Yeah. And Jason Bourne, Matt Damon, they really don't have a presence to him. I mean, obviously, we would know who Matt Damon is because he's a big celebrity, but it's not besides his celebrity status, really nothing is like that striking about him. He's just your regular looking guy. And I guess just like with me with this movie, just like when you see him as just like a regular looking guy, it really just kind of helps you relate to the guy a little bit more like you know who can really relate to daniel craig when he's you know walking out and he's in this like little little speedo thing with his like eight pack showing i mean that's not a regular look that's not a regular looking yeah. guy i mean that's a guy who spent the last you know year in the gym for three hours a day and stuff where matt damon's not you know he's not incredibly ripped or anything i mean he's in shape and yeah I, but, I, he, I but he that, looks like he looks like any guy that runs and lifts a little bit of weight he doesn't look like anything that's spectacular and that, I think that's the point, is that he's not supposed to be this super action Captain America kind of person. But he's very much a blend in. And I think that's that's a whole node to the CIA and how they operate. And, you know, th there's always the... When you talk about spies, you can't not talk about Bond because that's such a, an iconic character. But when you do modern spy films, you're wise to go in an opposite direction and make it dare I say, more realistic or at least more believable. When I'm with you, it, it does bring you into the story. Well, I think they kind of kind of kind of perfect with Matt Damon because he's a really good actor. I mean, I've seen him in a lot of stuff and he's oh, yeah. he's a good actor. He's a smart guy. If you ever listen to his interviews, I mean, he's very well versed. He's very articulate. And then on top of it, you know, he's just he's a regular looking guy. So they really got the perfect guy for this role. I couldn't imagine anybody else in it. 
I mean, we got Jeremy Renner's going to be taking over for him in the new one. You know, he's playing a different character. But it's like, could you imagine someone like Tom Cruise or someone else playing this role? Which, you know, 10 years ago, or actually this movie did come out 10 years ago. I mean, like 20 years ago, it would have been someone like Tom Cruise who would have played this role. Yeah, and you're, you're right. Or, or Patrick Swayze or one of those, those action stars of the day. I'll give you one other person, and he's in this movie. And it's Clive Owen. He's kind of the same thing for me. Everything you stick him in, I just buy it. And he he could he could play it. And I think he does good with the role he's given, however small it is here. But you, you need it to be American. I've heard Clive Owen try to do an American accent. It's terrible. So he's, he's the only British actor that can't do one, apparently. So uh, it's almost as bad as Julia Stiles' uh, British accent. But um, <laughs> but uh, Matt Damon, yeah, is is... He's the, sort of the embodiment of everything that you would want Jason Bourne to be. He's incredibly smart, he's well-versed, and he's also incredibly singular in purpose. He just is going to do his thing, and as long as you don't get in his way, you're fine. But if you do, he's just going to move right through you like you're not there. But he's never going to draw attention to himself. That's the whole bit is I can't draw attention to myself. And I like that. I like the sleeping part of all of this. Oh. And also dig, too, that the first 20 minutes of this, we have no idea what the hell is going on. You know, I mean, we open up with him floating in the water, and they, the, the fishermen, you know, I don't know what's happening. You know, they're, they're playing cards, and I'm like, I'm watching an episode of The Greatest Catch, or The Deadliest Catch here. And they drag him on board, and they start cutting off his wetsuit. And I got a question for you, because it was never explained. Did he have on some kind of armor underneath that wetsuit or something? Because... Those two slugs were were very perfectly embedded in his back. I don't know. I would imagine maybe that maybe the sweatsuit they'd send him on would be some type of like Teflon material or I don't know something that would be a little bit more bulletproof. We wouldn't put it, it takes. I wouldn't it put takes it the guy. It. it takes the guy a long time to cut through it, which is the only reason I would think maybe that's the case. It also explains how those bullets crumple a little bit like that but i gotta say this and i i only know this because i haven't read the book but i did read a little bit about the book then in the book he gets shot in the head and that's how he gets amnesia and i gotta tell you two shots in the back and amnesia is a that's a that was a little bit of a stretch for me and i i just went with it because i know that's what they have to do but i kind of wanted him to get grazed in the head eh, i don't know i mean i I see what you're saying and stuff like that, but let's say he did actually get shot, shot in the head. Would you actually believe a boat surgeon would be able to remove the br- move the bullet from the brain? Well, or well no, I mean, if, something, if, if, it you know, had, if it had skated along, I've mean, I'm, I'm known people that have actually been shot in the head and survived it and, and had no, you know, seemingly after some therapy and things, lasting repercussions. Of it, you know, so it can happen. I mean, that's not a that's not an unheard of thing that's in the news and stuff. I, I'm just saying, as a setup, if we we have to go with all this because none of this is explained to us until much later in the film, I and mean, really at the end, it's it's a little weird to just have to take. Yeah, I see what you're saying, but for me, I always figured that he got shot in the back and he just fell off the boat, and you know, between the loss of blood and being out in some really cold water for them all the time, that he just basically lost consciousness and they caused brain damage on him. That's what I always kind of figured happened, that it was kind of just like, it wasn't the bullets themselves, it was kind of a whole series of events that led him to, you know, form his amnesia or, you know, his severe post-traumatic stress thing where, you know, I don't know. Did they did they say it was amnesia that he had? Or they really didn't, yeah, they, they didn't really, I mean, no one really diagnosed him, they just kind of said that. Cause that's, well, he, yeah, he, he says it, but that's, 
the yeah, that's not the it. You're more you're more you're diagnosing it more correctly. It is more like post traumatic stress. Because I've, I've I've heard of stuff before. Someone's like you know even if it's like a bad car accident or something, they don't remember anything that happened. It's almost like the brain goes into some type of self preservation mode and makes you actually forget all that stuff. And you know it takes a while for you to remember that or. You know, you might never, might never remember that because it's trying to save you from that. So that's what I always kind of took it as. It's not really directly like amnesia, but his brain was basically, you know, protecting himself from this and maybe just the memories of why he was there and everything kind of just went with it. Well, let's let's go a little deeper into that right now. We we've come to learn that this character is someone who was someone else, made a conscious decision to go through this rigorous training program to become this super. Um, to become this really highly skilled agent that could be anywhere at any time and could infiltrate and do things and make it look like somebody else did it. I mean, that, they drop all that throughout the film, and really that last thing with Conklin's where he says all that. So it's already somebody who's given themselves amnesia as to what they used to be, and now there's another layer on it. So I had never thought about the idea of like the cold water and all that, but you're right. I, I, I've looked at this really as this is more like stress reaction and who we see him play when he's not fighting people in this film is who he was before he became Jason Bourne that he was just this guy and you know just a normal guy and then all of a sudden he you know and then he for whatever reason became the CIA agent and now he's sort of battling with which side of his brain does he turn on it's an interesting way to set up a film because like I said they don't tell us any of this and I'll tell you what got me out of my whole how can you get shot in the back and get amnesia bit is when they cut that thing out of his hip and you see that it's a little laser pointer and there's this whole bank account on the wall I thought that was kind of cool yeah I thought that was always kind of a little neat little thing you know it's it makes sense you know if some guy got shot and the CIA would you know or, or Langley or whoever's this you know behind him would you know find the body and then take it out and stuff because What's the chances of really anybody really knowing who this guy is? I mean, I always took it that, you know, only like the top five people really knew who he was, you know. So someone would collect the body, you know, hey, they got the it's standard that they all got this tracking thing in their hip, go in there, take it out, and, you know, go back to the, go follow the code to the bank and get in there and get rid of all the evidence, you know, or take the money yeah, back. Get a, get, or, yeah, get all those passports and get everything out of there and just be done with it. Yeah, I mean, that's, and that becomes sort of his chase is because, He's on this boat for a couple of weeks, and he's arguing with this Italian. He can speak the language, but he doesn't know how he knows it, and he doesn't know who he is. He just knows little things. It's like he's forgotten everything, and it is like he's had a a psychotic break over the the last few weeks. And he winds up in Switzerland, and that's you know that's where he goes to the bank to try to get all the stuff, and he starts flipping through, and then we cut away to the CIA. And I, this, to me, is, is where I really started getting into the film because one of my favorite character actors working today comes on the screen. That's Chris Cooper. I remember him from way back, like October Sky. and so I, I've never seen him in anything where I didn't like him in it. It's not to say every film he's done is good, but he's always really believable. I totally dig this guy every time he's on the screen. Yeah, I... I'm not, I don't know much of his work. I think it's really the only other movie I know him from is, um, what's that movie with Ethan Hawke and Gwyneth Paltrow, uh, Great Expectations, the remake, the remake of that. I remember him in that. And I know I've seen him in a couple other things. And yeah, he's always been a, he's always been a good actor and he kind of always plays that, that angry everyman. You know, he's, 
it seems like, you know, he's just kind of like a blue collar worker. And, but in theory, he pulls it off really well as being like, you know, this, this captain of the field agents and stuff. And he's just always got this scowl on his face. And you really buy it that, you know, he's done this for a long time. And, you know, it's just like, yeah, this guy, he, you know, we lost him and stuff like that. Well, he's either dead or he defected. You know, there's no other thing with him because he's seen it all and stuff. And that's usually the two ways it goes. They're either dead or he's defected. And then when they find out he's alive, it's like, well, no, he's defected. That's why, you know, so we got to go out there and we got to kill him. We got to cover our tracks, you know? And- oh, yeah. He's doing exactly what every stereotypical head of some you know shadow government agency will do is you start covering all up. It, you know, the men in black just neuralize everybody. But in reality, this is the same kind of guy who's just trying to make all this disappear. And he's and you get the sense that he's done it for so long that it's just like that, you know, there's no hesitation with the dude. And I think that's one thing I like about Cooper's performance here is that no time does he ever look rattled or lost. You know, even at the point where he's getting killed in the end, I mean, he's like he expected it. You know, I mean, he, but I don't think anything surprises the dude, and and I, I like that. Now we we do have to talk about the female, really the the only other one besides Julia Stiles, who's really just a just a technician in this film. She just has a few lines. We got to talk about Marie Franca Potente. Um, I don't know her from anything else. I've never seen her in anything. wouldn't Couldn't pick her out of a lineup, but. I love how they meet because he overhears her arguing about trying to get a visa at the consulate. And then he he basically understands that she needs money. I need a ride. So he just throws money at her basically to say, I need a ride to Paris. Now, what did you make of her? Oh, I really like her. I've seen her in uh, Run, Lola, Run. It's a, it's a foreign movie. It's a really, really good action film, and she's excellent in, in it. But uh, for this movie, I think she's just perfect because, again, it's almost like the exact – the same side of the coin of Matt Damon, you know, just the female side of the coin where she's just sort of kind of like a regular looking girl and stuff. And you really kind of buy her the whole time. I mean, you see her in there arguing with the, the customs guy about, you know, her getting a new passport or a visa, whatever they were arguing about and stuff. And I mean, you completely buy it. I mean, they could easily cast it some real, real, you know, attractive, you know, Hollywood starlet in here. But, you know, they have her and she's, you know, she's not a bad looking girl and stuff, but she's just real kind of just like a regular looking girl. And I like the rapport that her and, you know, Jason have, especially when they're in the car, you know, they're driving. And what kind of music do you like? And he's all like, I, I don't know. I don't know. And she thinks, you know, he's just trying to be polite or doesn't want to put the music on. And then they're kind of start getting into an argument about it. And that's when he breaks down and tells her. And I, even when they get to the apartment too, it was like, you kind of see, you kind of buy into her that she's kind of maybe gotten a little bit of a thing for this guy, especially after he tells her, you know, I'm never going to forget you. You know, you're the only girl I've ever known or the only person I know and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, you're the only person I know. <laughs> yeah, which I I thought the comedy between the two of them in the car where she's just rattling on and on, and he has no, you know, he's just sitting there going, uh huh, hmm? you know, and, he, and she's like, are are you ever gonna say anything? No, it's it's relaxing to listen to you. <laughs> and then I and I and I don't know, it almost felt like when he said, I haven't slept in a long time. I was like, if you'll just keep talking, I'll finally go to sleep. And I thought, well, that's kind of hilarious, though. I mean, I I dug that. I I liked the fact that um, they had some rapport. And later on, when they do hook up, you know, that seems so trite in a film, right? Because that's always going to happen. It feels much more earned in this one than in a lot of other films that try to do well, the same. Well, when that thing, happens, you know? I mean, they've been through a lot. I mean, she's seen the first person probably she's ever seen killed. And she's seen everything he's gone through. And it's almost like, again, like traumatic stress where... A lot of, you know, you hear about that where, you know, people that go through a traumatic experience together end up, you know, falling for each other or whatever just because they went through that. And 
you know, especially when, you know, he's dying her hair and stuff like that. And it just, it, it's earned. It's definitely is. And you, you expect it at that time because you've been, you've been along their journey the whole time and you see it happening between them. It's not just out of the blue. You kind of see it slowly developing throughout the whole movie. And when it happens, it's not like, Oh God, you know, here's another freaking pointless love scene or something like that. It's like, it's almost like a character building thing. Cause you, you want, you want it to happen. Well, and it's not much of a love scene. They start kissing in the bathroom, and then you wake up the next day, and he's fully dressed, and she's dressed in you know clothes, and wakes up in the bed and looks at him. And he's like, "Okay, yeah, well, um, it's time to go," <laughs> you know. And I I like that that they didn't go for the the obvious thing, and that's that comes like you said much later in the film. But it was interesting to talk about her because I kind of dug her. I mean, I, I there was something just simple about her and her whole look and. She kind of hit me as this real free spirit kind of person. And they even set that up as they're, once they finally start tracking her, the CIA people, they're like, well, she's lived here, here, and here. And they're, you know, they have this whole task force basically just trying to figure out who she is and where she's been so that they can find him. And I, I like that. I like that the procedural part of this seemed very real. Now, obviously, I'm not in the CIA, and I don't think you are either. At least you haven't told me. And if you did, I probably wouldn't be here to tell anybody about it. So you guys won't hear but, from Jay ever I, again. I got, <laughs> <laughs> but I kind of get the feeling that, that this is how they would they would process three things. Okay, well let's look at everywhere she's lived in the past six years, what she did there, what kind of credit history she's got, where's her family, etc. You know all that stuff, and I I really dug that whole part of it because it gave. Really, these nameless people, they have names, but they're never said in the film, like Walton Goggins, who I know from The Shield and other things, and some of these other uh, actors like Julia Stiles and stuff, something to do while Conklin is running around and arguing with his boss, Brian Cox, uh, Ward Abbott, you know, the original Hannibal Lecter, or Colonel William Stryker. For you According to a Harry Knowles who played Ash. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's that old eighty well. cool news joke that was pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, so, but yeah, Brian Cox. I mean, I, I want to tell you this is another dude that I think there's only certain kinds of roles he can play, and it's usually when he's really he's so sinister and you know it, but that's okay that you know that from the get go. And I I dig him. I mean, I like the the rapport between. The two guys that are clearly at least 20 years or more older than everybody else in the room that they're working with. <laughs> and they throw their weight around pretty heavily. And I, I, I like the fact that Conklin had somebody he had to report to. Yeah. Before. And especially what's kind of cool about Conklin is he's really not a bad guy in this film. I mean, he's just like, he's yeah. a top guy. He's kind of like, you know, looking over his underling, you know, and, and Cooper. And he's not, he's never a bad guy. He's just kind of like the absolute there. You know, it's like he's the guy that he's, He's got someone to report to, but he's the one that's going to take the complete fall for everything if it goes wrong. And you can sense that with everything because when he's talking to uh, Chris Cooper's character, you know, about, you know, he's telling the his boss that, you know, no one on his staff is that reckless and everything. And, you know, they kind of, they obviously have a relationship where, you know, Cooper's character does whatever he does and he doesn't directly report it to him because of that. But he's questioning about it, and you kind of like are with him. You're like, you know, yeah, what's this guy doing and stuff like that? Yeah, go after him, man. He's no. I was gonna say the best line is when Cooper says, "Well, I'm gonna go hunt him, and you go upstairs and reserve a conference room. Maybe he'll come in and talk to you." And it's you see the disconnect between the, for lack of a better way of saying it, the middle management and the upper management. You know, it's like okay, you go and talk to the budget committee i've got to go find this guy who's killing people all over paris and who didn't kill the one person we sent him out there to kill 
You know, of course we, but we didn't. You know, that's he's always keeping that up, and I love the fact that these guys are basically lying to each other, and they both know they're lying to each other, but they don't care because that's part of what they do. But even like even like Cooper though, he kind of comes off like as the the. You know, like at any type of work environment, he's kind of like the shop foreman of a manufacturing plant where yeah, Abbott would be kind of like the, the vice president guy who still has like the president to report to. But he's like, they're friends and stuff, but one's got to be the political doing everything by the numbers where the other guy's the one that's got to get down and dirty. And that's just kind of how I always took the relationship. But I, I like the relationship. I like you know, the rapport and I liked how, you know, Conklin's like, you know, you never said you're going to ask me a direct question and. Yeah, but it's like, well, I lied. You know, <laughs> tell me what happened. And good, good point. Yeah, that that's the kick about about this film is that it it's smart enough to let the audience in on things that we can follow, but it also it lets you know that we're never going to explain all the rules. You're just going to have to keep up. And I think that's what I like about it is we're just sort of dropped in the middle of this workspace, and we just have to sort of put it together. Based on what we see, because really all this takes place in what, yeah. two, three days? Even, even, I mean, that's, well, well, yeah, maybe a couple of weeks because there's that time lapse, but really what we see is Yeah, 90% of the movie takes over, like, about a good half of a week. But uh, also, like, we even like these guys, like, you know, you kind of always have questions about where they are and what their, th- what their you know, roles are in the whole, you know, scheme of the government and everything, but it's... It's nice because you have those questions, but the movie never really asks you those questions. You don't have like Jason Bourne going, well, who's this Abbott guy, Abbott guy and what does he do and everything, and them telling you exactly what he does. I mean, they're not pulling a David Lindelof where they're just throwing questions out at you and then going, ah, we, we, we're not going to answer them. You know? All the questions are really organic to the story, and that's what I like. I mean, that's, I, I love it when it's like that. There's no character that's there for the audience to walk us through. I guess it's supposed to be Marie... But even she's not asking anything because she's too scared out of her Yeah, and, that, and that's the way it you know, would be. And that's yeah. why I really enjoyed, you know, this this movie is just because everything – it doesn't, doesn't spoon feed you. And in the end, it doesn't give you the answers because, honestly, he would never get the answers. Cause- yeah, well, what he comes to realize is I don't want the answers. That's that's the whole point is that – you know, and uh, we'll get to that in a minute with that showdown with him and Conklin, but – that's really the point of it. Well, he doesn't. He doesn't want the. Uh, he the, doesn't want the answers, but he knows he's never going to get them either. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a win-win with him just basically accepting that he is who he is now, and you know whoever he was is in the past, and there's a reason why he forgot that. So that's the way I took it. Right. It, exactly. Now this whole bit is as they get going. This is all really centered around this African dictator Wambosi, played by. Mr. Echo from Lost, as the, I, no one can pronounce this dude's name. Adewale, Akinaway, Abaye, I think is how you say it. <laughs> but his his whole bit, I mean, I I was watching this going, I don't know who this guy's supposed to be. He's He feels like a bad Papa Shango ripoff from WWF. I mean, he's, he's so over the top. He's, I will show the people, we'll put their head on a stick in front of this house and blah, blah, blah. I mean, he's, he's only in the film for a little bit. But you get the idea that he was a threat. But it comes off, and I think his story is that he was somebody that was put into power long ago by the CIA, and much as often happens with our connections is it's time to retire those people. And so he was supposed to be out of the way. But now that he's not, and he knows somebody tried to kill him, he's blabbing this out there for the world to hear, and that's the last thing the CIA wants is press. They don't ever want you to know they were there. 
And that's what makes him a threat. And I got to say, I kind of liked how they they worked his story back into this and to to continue to, as they're driving around trying to find Born and Marie. They've got to deal with Wambosi too. And so they dispatch you know, people to take care of it. I love how they dispatch these assassins. Everybody gets like a text message while they're giving piano lessons or doing something else. And all it says is arm up and go to wherever. And I, I thought that was sort of cool. Yeah, definitely. I like the inclusion of his character. I mean, it could have been real easy for them just to show that as like a quick flashback. Like this was his target and he screwed it up and that was it. But I liked how that was really inter- intertwined into the plot and actually was kind of the driving force of they're, why they're going after Jason Bourne with such you know, prejudice, why they need to get rid of him right away is because, well, he's alive and they think maybe, you know, maybe he teamed up with them or maybe, he, you know, you know, he defected over. And they also got this guy all suddenly saying he's got all this information. So it's like, where is he getting this information from, too? Is he getting this from Jason Bourne? You know, what's going on? And it's just, again, I think it's just a real nice little element to it. And then, you know, I like the scene where the professor takes him out. I mean, it's just so unexpected. He's walking down the stairs and, also, you know, snipe, 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 he's down. Yeah, that, and that's that's when you, I mean, Clive Owen, that's really, as he's introduced, it's his second scene. And he just shoots him, gets up, pulls the gun apart, and walks off the roof. And I thought, that that's pretty slick. I mean, because I mean, the guy didn't see it coming at all. I mean, he's he's walking down the stairs, talking trash to one of his underlings or whatever. And like you said, then he's, he's down. And it just, out of nowhere. And that would be... I guess how you would imagine it would go, but I, this is the CIA, or at least Conklin. You're seeing it starting to burn all of this down. You know, it's like okay, we got to take it down this whole thing because if any of this gets back to the Senate or the American public, people would freak out, right? Because what's the the whole theme there is that the less people know, the better off they are. I mean, that's it permeates a lot of different films. I mean, I go back to Men in Black. That's a line Tommy Lee Jones says in it, is that people are fine as long as they don't know aliens are here. And I think that's the same premise here. The CIA operates from this idea that the less people know, the better. Oh, definitely. And also, we got to ask you, what did you think about the fighting style with this, with the, all the assassins and everything? Because I think we kind of glanced over it, but the uh, first big major fight in the movie was with uh, when Jason got back to his apartment and the assassin comes crashing through the window. I love how it's it's very sudden, like it would be a sudden ambush type of attack. And I love the martial arts. I thought it was really well done. But here's the thing I, I really appreciate about Doug Lyman's direction in it. At no time did I feel like the camera was shoved in somebody's face while they were punching at each other. It's pulled back so you can see the two bodies going at each other. And I really appreciated that. And it wasn't at... Like, it was fast and fast moving, but there was nothing that I felt like was hyperspeed. You know, it was impossible for someone else to do. I mean, I really dug the fact that it looked very, very, uh, I don't want to say real, that it it just flowed in a way, and it was, you could see it. You know, there was a broad shot of it. It's almost like we're looking, we're watching it just like Marie's watching it, or whoever's the third person in the scene. Yeah, I just like how brutal it is, too. I mean, these guys, you know, they're using every little object they have around the house to try to kill each other with, you know, whether it's a... Yeah, but yeah, Bourne stabs him with a pin, and I mean, yeah, it's, ooh, yeah. Yeah, I just, I, I like that style. I thought it was really kind of cool. And, you know, it's like you see him with the knife in the beginning of the scene, and you think, okay, something's going on. You know, maybe there's some guy out there, and he's probably going to kill him with a knife. And it's like, no, he drops the knife. And then they end up getting a fight. He ends up using a pen, or he ends up, you know, crumpling up a, you know, rolling up a magazine and using that. You know, it's it's always something around the house that he uses, and it's always really just well done. I, I like the fights because they're very kinetic. I mean, it's very, like, 
smack, 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 smack. I mean, it's almost like a martial arts film when they're doing that, but. It really is. It did, it did harken back to some of the better Kung Fu films I've seen in my day, some of the, the old Bruce Lee stuff, and how it was anything they could get their hands on was fair game. Um, so in that respect, it's kind of like Peter versus the chicken on Family Guy, but um, but not nearly as funny. But yeah, no, I, I liked it, though. I, I dug the part where he stabs the guy with the pen and the guy just rips it out of his hand. And I thought, now that is when you know you're on a different level of badass, when you can just do that and keep going. And, and I love at the end of that fight, the dude, like... It, Marie is going through his bag and she sees all these pictures from the consulate and she's like, how would they get these? And she's freaking out and Bourne's trying to get her to calm down. And in the meanwhile, the guy gets up and throws himself out the window and kills himself. That's the whole bit about, well, I'll take the suicide pill now because I failed my mission. That's pretty hard. Even before that, like, you know, after the fight, after Jason won, he has the guy on the floor. It's just a nice little tidbit to it. It's like, you know, he's asking him questions. The guy's not answering. He grabs his hair and just kind of pulls up his head and hits it on the floor again. Just when he's questioning him, and I just like that. It was just like, you know, that's that's what would happen. I mean, you just got done beating up this guy, and now he's not answering your questions. It's like, yeah, you're gonna hit him again. You know, tell me what I want to know. And it's just one of those one of those one of those little tidbits that I always laugh at when I see it. I'm just like, yeah, it's that's awesome. Yeah, it was. It's it comes off like someone who's in control, even the fact that they just you know had their face kicked in a little bit. That he's still in control enough to know I've got to get something out of this guy. I and mean, they don't really get much. They just get what's in his bag. But they know. Enough then to know that the CIA is tracking them, and Bourne's figured out that well they must want us for something. You know, again, he doesn't really know who he is yet. That's the the whole point. It's not until after he finds out Wambosi's dead that he comes up with the idea that I must have been an assassin in my previous life, and that that you can see when he says that to her, it's like he it sickens him. He's like, I can't believe I was someone who just killed people. As and the whole thing, too, is, like, it doesn't just come out of the blue. You can see him putting the pieces together throughout the whole movie. I mean, when they're at the diner and he's, you know, talking, like, you know, I can see the eye goes, I know where all the exits are. I know that this guy over there weighs this many pounds and he can handle himself really well. I know the best place to look for a gun is there. I know the best place to look for keys is there. I know that I can run this far yeah. for this long before, you know, I fall over and stuff. And it's like, he's, you know, like, how do I know that? You know, how why is that going through my head right now? I mean, you can almost sense that. When he goes in there, it's like he's just kind of calculating this all in his head. Then, all like, this, if this happens, I'm going to do this. If this happens, I'm going to do this. If that happens, I'm going to go over here and do that. So it's like when he actually, you know, figures out, he goes, you know, yeah, I was an assassin. It's not like that just came out of the blue. It's like you, you know that you, yeah, know, you figured yeah. it out with him. I mean, you obviously know because of what was going on in the CIA. But I think if they would take that part out, the CIA part, and just had this movie be just about him with these guys, you know, coming after him, I think you'd be able to figure that out with him throughout the whole movie and not have that part be like a big twist. Exactly. I mean, it's and it's what we sort of know going in anyway. I mean, we kind of figure that. I mean, I think if you see the trailer to this, you, you know this guy was you know, some kind of secret agent and he just doesn't remember it. So it's how do, how do you make that interesting? And the way you do it is, like you said, just piece by piece by piece watching him walk through the board game. And then he comes to that knowledge. And, or at least enough of it to start putting it together, and we're right there in the same boat as he is, figuring it out and going with it. And all the while, all this other stuff is going on around him that he has only some inkling about, and that's the CIA's role and what they're trying to do to get him. And Marie comes up with the idea of going and seeing her stepbrother, it is, in the countryside. And they get there, and they basically break into the dude's house. <laughs> 
which I think is funny. And he's like, no, we can't stay. It's Christmas time. Like, I get the whole idea when he walks in, and he sees the Christmas tree and stuff, but he's like, there are kids here. No, we're not going to be here in front of, like, th- that could be dangerous. And I liked that because it, you know, this is a guy who's pretty ruthless, right? He could have just dismissed it as like, screw it, we're taking over. But he's like, no, there's no reason to put innocent people in harm's way. He's obviously got, he's got a soft spot for children. I think they've kind of made that, you know, yeah. with, that's the reason why he didn't assassinate Juan Bosi was because of the kids. And then even when he goes into the house, I mean, he sees kids and he's real hesitant about it. And almost all his actions there were to preserve their life later. I mean, he's willing to sacrifice himself when the professor shows up just to get them out of there. Because, you know, he's like, you got to get out of here. You know, and he goes out there and he's throwing, you know, big, you know, trying to get the guy's attention. So they leave them alone and everything. Right, exactly. And that's the whole bit is the guy, the brother and all, they let him stay there that night and they get it the next day and he figures out, oh, wait a minute, they're going to find us here. If they're tracking us this close, they're going to figure it out. And sure enough, the CIA has figured out this is where they probably will be. And he's he gets you know her brother and or stepbrother and the kids in the basement and the professor has shown up and he starts shooting at him. And I love how Bourne, again, just going around the house, grabs an old double-barrel shotgun. He's going through a desk, and he sees a couple shotgun shells, finds where the shotgun is probably hidden away where the kids can't get it, because I'm sitting there going, that's where my dad put his gun when I was a kid, was the place I couldn't reach for it. And he goes out there with a double-barrel shotgun and goes against this sniper. And I thought, now this is going to be an intense fight, and it's actually kind of anticlimactic, but I liked it just the same. What did you think of the gunfight between him and the professor? He approached the fight, I think, in the way the professor wasn't expecting. Because, you know, you got this guy who is very calculated. I mean, he's out there waiting. He's got the height advantage. I mean, he's up on the hillside. It's, and you're just like, well, I think you'd expect Jason Bourne to kind of maybe try to hide himself and try to get over there. But no, he grabs a shotgun, he blows up the propane tank. It was the exact opposite, I think, of what he was expecting. And by doing that, I think it caught the professor off guard, and he was able to flank him on it and shoot him. You know, it was, I think it was just kind of a great scene. And you just see him. He's yeah. just very nonchalant about stuff. You know, he's not showing any emotion. He's just like, nope, this is what I got to do. I got to kill this guy. And, you know, I think his main objective was to protect the people in the house. And I think that was actually probably the first time he's done that in this movie where he was fighting for somebody else besides him or just because it was instinct. And I think that's you can almost see it in how he – approached that gunfight with him was just you know boom blown it up that's going to get his attention and you know he's getting he's out in the open and stuff if he shoots at him he shoots at him kills him he kills him but i i thought it was just a cool fight well i love i thought it was great and i love how he shoots him and he walks up on him and he's trying to get at what he can out of him before he dies and the professor basically tells him hey we're we're the same you know we we have the same job you don't don't you know that and they're talking about Treadstone. At that point, Bourne's had a couple of conversations with Conklin. and they, I mean, they've gone back and forth. There's been some limited phone uh, connection between them. And the professor's the one that tells him about what Treadstone was, what the project was. And that's when Bourne knows, I've got to get Marie away so that I can meet Conklin and you know, bring him in the open take and, and finally confront him about this once and for all. And I thought that was really, I thought it was cool how he, you know, brings the professor's bag back in there and uses his phone to call Conklin. And he basically sets up a lie. He says, I killed Marie because she was slowing me down. I mean, he comes off, he plays the ruthless part. And he gets the CIA all in a all in a tizzy so that he knows he can draw them out. And I, I thought that was neat the way he played them. 
Because, you know, it makes sense, you know, if he's supposed to be some ruthless killer and stuff like that, it's like, yeah, I'm with this woman, I'm using her as kind of a protection and transportation, but she's slowing me down, so I killed her. And, you know, it's a smart move to get him off of her trail, because obviously if they ended up getting him, they would go after her. But I think if they thought she was dead or whatever, then they probably really wouldn't waste the resources. So there's really no reason you wouldn't believe him either at that point. I mean, they don't know what the relationship is. They don't know that they're kind of got a little bit of a thing, and they both got feelings for each other. For all they know, I mean, that's exactly what it is, was that he's just a ruthless killer, and she got him, slowed him down, and he killed her. Yeah, exactly. and what we what we haven't really talked about is he's running around with about $3 million in cash or maybe a little bit more, and he basically gives it to her. And says, "Go start a life somewhere else. Go, you know, go away, and I'll, you know, whatever happens, happens." And she finally takes him up on it. And this is the thing where I realize I'm like, this is not your typical action film because the action film, the woman would go, "No," and she would throw the bag in the snow, and you pick up a gun and cock it a few times or something, right? It would be, it would be something ridiculous like that. But she gets in the car and leaves, like a smart person would do. She's not a dumb, dumb, like I said, she's not a real dumb character in this movie. I mean, she's put in a lot of bad situations and stuff, but she's never really the damsel in distress, really. I mean, everything is, that happens to her is out of her control, and she really can't make it better or worse. And, you know, as soon as the first chance she can get to get out of there, she's out of there. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of other movies would probably play it where she's like, no, I'm with you with this until the end and stuff, and you're going to take me, or we've done it this far, we're going to finish it together. I mean, no, she's like, nope, I'm out of here. Exactly. And that's when we really get to the climax here where Conklin goes back to the Paris safe house and meets up with Bourne. And I love this scene here. It's it's Chris Cooper's best scene in the film because he basically just unloads on the guy. And he says, you you are a I think he calls him a malfunctioning piece of equipment. And, and, you know, and I like that. I like how he talks about him. He said, I sent you in because you don't exist. <laughs> you know, you're supposed to, you weren't supposed to kill him. You were supposed to make it look like one of his own people did because then it's not obvious. You're the one that came up with this. And through all of that badgering, it triggers Bourne's memory. And I got to tell you, as someone who studies psychology and counseling and things, sometimes that real active, um, almost gestalt approach to therapy where you really challenge and are really hammering on somebody that's got some repressed memories. That's one way to really bring it out. And I, I dug that, that this guy would be seasoned enough and confident enough that he could do that to a guy like Jason Bourne and still See, feel I took like it as almost like he was trying to break Jason like he probably originally broke him. I mean, we've kind of learned that Jason volunteered for this program and it probably involved with them probably breaking his, you know, psyche back when he did it. I mean, isn't that kind of what a lot of the military do? They 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 break they break you down to build right, you back up. Right. And I think he was almost resorting to that here, where he's just breaking them down and just trying to, you know, not trying to anger them in a way like challenging them. It's just like, no, you, you don't get what you are, man. You're just a machine. You're you're you're, you're nothing, man. He goes, you know, what do you yeah. think this is, man? You think you know. You think you mean anything? He goes, no, you're just an asset. You're a broken piece of machinery. We got to get rid of you. And it's like, don't you understand that? You should know that. You know, that's what you signed up for. How do you not get that? And I think just by him kind of going back to probably how he treated Jason Bourne in the beginning was kind of almost like one full circle for Jason where it kind of like it kickstarted his memories of how he used to be treated and just hearing him talk like that and probably just having a whole history of having that guy talk to him like that kind of started kickstarting some of his memories again yeah i agree i I dug the whole bit and i like how 
he essentially just quits. You know, Bourne's just like, I, well, I'm done with that. I don't want to do this anymore. And he <laughs> knocks him out. <laughs> you know, and I, I dug that. I was like, yeah, that's exactly what everyone wants to do when they quit the job that they hate. Sort <laughs> of punch your boss out. You know, but I like that. But then we get now. This is the one part of the film I'm going to ding a little bit here, because we get this shootout with the other Treadstone agents that are just like I don't know. Armed I took them as like probably Conklin's bodyguards, just like his chosen bodyguard staff, the red yeah. the red stormtroopers in Star Wars. Yeah, they yeah they definitely were were interesting. Well, they were definitely wearing red shirts, that's for sure, because they had no name and they all died quickly. But I like how Bourne engages in this shootout with him, and I think he gets hit or something. He gets winged, and I, the the biggest thing is when he kicks the guy through the uh, the railing and rides his body down to the ground and shoots the guy on the way down. I'm like, now that was James Bond. That was a little much in in a film that has been so very real with all of the action. That was the one piece I thought. Eh, yeah, I, I really always work. watch that, and I'm always just kind of like, oh, it just doesn't really fit with the movie. And it's it's not even the before part about that or the after. It's just the thing itself. How he just he lines them up perfectly and shoots them. It's like uh, I would have just rather had him kick the body off and it just ends up landing on the guy or something. Then he ends up shooting him or you know doing something like that would have made more sense. But even though after he falls down, it's not like he gets back up. I mean, he's obviously screwed up from that fall. I mean, he didn't get up and run away. He wasn't like you know ah that didn't affect me. I mean, he's. He's messed up, and that's why I just say uh, the beginning part of it I don't I like the last part of it I like is just that middle section where he's shooting him. It's just like, oh, uh, it's just you guys have you guys almost earned it, but you just it didn't work. Yeah, well, even the first part of it, man, where he's got the one gun upside down and the other one going, I'm like, that's a little too Bond. Like that's that feels really. It almost feels Arnold Schwarzenegger too. I'm like, I've I've seen that. Yeah, it's a little cheese ball. But I guess I, that stunt looks cool, and they probably just wanted to do it, but it it doesn't work. I I I don't I don't like that. But I like the fact that, like you said, he doesn't just like get up and go. That was fun, and walk out the door. You know, I mean, you there's a little more he to it. Broke his collarbone in that fall. The way he's holding on and his arms slouching, and I I I think what they probably wanted was, you know, it's like. We need the big action scene at the end. You know, it was like you had like the professor one and everything like that. But, you know, we need the big balls to the wall action scene. And I think they just they kind of they wanted to have it both ways in the end, being it realistic and being a big action scene. And you can't really there's not many movies that can pull that off very well. I mean, I think probably maybe Casino Royale is the only one that really pulls that off. And they try. I, it's just like it is the one part of the movie where it's just like uh, I just kind of watch it and. I remember even the first time my dad saw it, he's like, yeah, that stupid scene at the end where he jumps down. I'm like, yeah, I know, but the rest, 99% of the other parts are really good, man. It's like, it's, well, here's the thing, that action scene with him and the professor, that was so much more satisfying than this end because I, I can just sit there, I could spend a day just talking about that whole interplay and how he, he, you know, caused the distraction and flanked him, like you said, and he used the shotgun and how all that works. And that's another thing, you know, that's always a trope in like video games and in movies is that shotgun is only good for about like three feet. That is not true. You can shoot somebody a long way away with a shotgun and, and do some serious damage to him. And he, he pretty well shoots him clear across the field. And I like that as compared to this Arnold Sylvester Stallone, you know, commando thing here at the end. But you give it to it because what really, what the next thing they do, they get right. And that's that Chris Cooper's stumbling out of there and he sees all of his guys dead and he's like, crap, 
So he's walking down the street, and when that last assassin gets out of the car, and you see this dark figure struggling down the street, I thought, this is boring. They're going to shoot him dead in the street, but no, it's Conklin. And he just looks at the guy as if to say, well, I guess I knew this was coming, and the guy just shoots him twice in the chest, once in the head, and walks away, gets back in the car. Oh, yeah, definitely. I think even with Conklin's character, I mean, this would have been made in like the early 90s, late 80s. Conklin would have been another badass himself, and it would have been a big brawl fight between him and Bourne in the end, like, I was the original one, or, you know what I'm saying? It would have been some crap like that, and then they would have yeah. been, that would have been the big climax scene. But no, I like the way that the whole thing plays out, because the first time I saw it, I thought that was Bourne. I'm like, because you almost kind of get a feeling that he's going to die, because Maria's gone and stuff, and he doesn't even know really know who he is. I mean, he got an idea of what he did when he's an assassin, but you still have no idea who he was even before that. I mean, was he married? Does he have a family? What's going on? And you kind of think like, oh, man, he might die. And then also you see his Conklin. Yeah. And it's like, you know, yeah, that's nice because I like the way, you know, Abbott comes back. Our Abbott is Abbott, right? Yeah. A- Abbott, yeah, because it's, it's Abbott, the one that we learn. It's, it's uh, the last guy at the safe house that's still working it. One of uh, uh, Conklin's guys. Well, it, it it brings the movie full circle too because you see that he's covering his tracks and trying to basically stop this whole thing because it, it's escalated out of control at this point. I mean, the Wambosi situation's done with, but now you got this whole other situation with gunfights and car chases, and it's uh, you know you can see like you know Conklin was doing that originally, trying to cover his tracks and clean stuff up. Well, now it's gone up to the next level. And it's really gone full circle. And I think that's when Conklin walked out of that room and he saw his guys dead and saw know that Bourne was gone, he knew that his life was over because he knew now, okay, he dropped the ball and now it's going to go up to the next level guy and that means that he's gone. And and the the, you know, the high-level bureaucrat, he's always got to meet with the oversight committee. And what does he do? He says, ah, we got to shut this down. It's not really uh, – it was more of a game program, really not cost-effective. But we have this other thing that is, and I'm like, that's exactly what a politician does or someone who – talks to politicians for money does and he pulls out this big file and boom then you know that's sort of the beginning it's, of the yeah that's because it's and, over it's done with yeah. it's like you know he's probably got 50 other things going on in his life and his career it's like yep that one thing you know i cut it off like a freaking you know cut it off like a mole you know it's gone it's done with you know now into the next thing you know we're done and it's i liked it too and actually you know that comes back in the later movies what he's talking about which is really cool so Exactly, and that gives us something to think about, this whole idea of Operation Blackbriar. You know, it gave them a place to go if they were going to go somewhere else. And I like the the coda here at the end, because again, in lesser films, this would seem really forced and weird, but because that relationship was so earned and stuff, we see Marie, who's got her surf shop going in Greece, and Bourne walks in the door and says, can I rent a scooter? And she has that whole line with him about, you got any ID? And he's like, not really. And I thought that was really, you know, funny. And they don't like, you know, start making out on the floor. She runs up, gives him a big hug, and they just kind of stand there for a minute. And I thought that that was a really nice coda to. Oh yeah, definitely. I like it too because you want it to happen. I mean, it's not just one of those like, oh yeah, it's got to happen. I mean, you want it to happen because you've been with them the whole time and you've seen how the relationship has developed and it's earned, like you said, it's completely earned. And I, I think it ends on a great note. And you know, it's. It, the whole series could end right here. I mean, they didn't have to do sequels after this because 
really the whole movie's t- tied up nicely with a nice bow at this point. Nick, I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to give our final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings. So what are your... Oh, I recommended this series. So I think it's pretty obvious how I feel. Um, I I love The Born Identity. I think it's great. Um, it's one of those movies I've actually bought three times. I bought the uh, the regular DVD. I bought the <laughs> Explosive Extended Edition, which really wasn't anything much. They had a new beginning and a new ending, which kind of made the whole movie a flashback, which I don't think really worked. I'm kind of glad that they... The theatrical way is the way to go. And then I bought it on Blu-ray, and it's a fantastic set. I mean, all three of them, I mean, they all look alike. All the menus are alike, and it's it's a great Blu-ray set. It's one of my favorites. It's right up there with the Alien uh, Alien Anthology. So overall, it's a, it's a really fun movie. It's very rewatchable. I can't tell you how many times I've watched it. It's I like even like the ending. You know, you got that Moby track at the end, and I think that's a little great little capper to the movie, and it's kind of a born theme song, so... Yeah, I think I've been pretty clear. I'm going to give this movie a large popcorn. It's very good, so recommend it. And if you haven't seen it, get out there and see it. I think it's great, too. And I'm glad you introduced it to me because I, of course, having never seen it before, bought the Blu-ray set after watching. I watched this on DVD, and I was like, I must own this. And I finally joined the Blu-ray revolution for listeners that have heard me talk about that for two years now. Um, So, yay. But uh, I bought it, too. I bought all three of them, you know, just on the strength of this one film and i it, i hadn't seen the other two so we'll see how that goes but i gotta tell you this is a really smart thriller and i dig smart thrillers of all kinds legal crime dramas spy films whatever they may be as long as they treat me with uh, as an audience member with a good bit of knowledge and respect and you make it fun and believable i'll give you weird moments like two shots in the back give me amnesia and a surfboard shoot out in the house at the end even if i don't think they're very good i'll give it to you because so much else here is so good the relationships the dialogue is fantastic in this film and the the character actors i think the the fact that this film is stock full of character actors i think matt damon's a leading man because he's been in a lot of big films, but he's a good actor. He can just do things. He can be a lot of different stuff. And I think everybody else here is is a great moment to it, or brings great moments to this thing. So I, with you, I highly recommend it, and I give it a large popcorn as well. Real fun flick, and had a good time with it. And I look forward to talking about the sequels with you, too, and getting into this new one in August, this Born Legacy film, which will not have Matt Damon in it. So we'll we'll talk more about that as we get closer on that second and third film. But well, th- folks, thanks so much for joining us for this review of the Born Identity. You can find more episodes in the archive section of our website, continuousplaypodcast.com slash movies. A lot of stuff there. I mean, we've done Alien. Uh, we even did Pretty Woman way back in the day. <laughs> you know, we, we got a lot of stuff in there. And uh, Brian and I have done you know, things like Ready to Rumble and uh, I Know What You Did Last Summer. There's all kinds of stuff in there. So check us out. Give us a review on iTunes. Leave us a note. Catch up with us on Facebook and on Twitter, too. It's a good way to follow us. And hey, if you like the show, tell your friends about it and pass it around. We don't do this for money. We just do it for fun. So we're glad you joined us for the ride. And until next time, for Nick, I'm Jay. Thanks for tuning in to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. All material discussed in this podcast is property of the respective owners, and any discussion of these materials is for entertainment purposes only. Filmstrip is a movie review podcast produced by Continuous Play Podcast, copyright 2012. Same ways of back.